Welcome to Falling Through the Cracks. Feel alive and thrive with Dr. Rebecca Risk. Do you ever feel that even though nothing seems seriously wrong and you pass all the medical tests, that you still feel that your health, pain, and fatigue are completely out of control? It doesn't have to be that way. Listen to the tips and suggestions given on our program today and take back control of your health. Now, here is Dr. Rebecca Risk. Hi, everybody. Welcome to Falling Through the Cracks. Today, we're talking with Abby Norman. She is a science writer who is on a quest to make doctors listen to women's pain. Today, we're discussing her book, Ask Me About My Uterus. Abby, welcome to the show. Hi, thank you so much for having me. Um, so I, I, I mean, it's interesting that, that we're, we're talking about this and, and I know you're, you're not 100% well today. So I want to thank you so much for, for joining me to, to continue to spread the word and, and make, do the work that you're doing. Yeah, yeah. It's, um, it is kind of ironic that, like, I've, you know, I've been on the book tour for this book and then actually got a pretty serious infection right in the middle of it, <laughs> which is just kind of the nature of having a chronic health problem. So, um, yeah, I am, well, I'm very glad to be here anyway. Yeah. <laughs> well, I think anybody who, who does deal with um, chronic health issues does understand that, you know, it's not something that you can control and it is going to rear its head at the most inopportune times. Mm-hmm, certainly. <laughs> so um, can you just tell us, I mean, at, your, your book is titled Ask Me About Your Uterus. And, um, y- you know, what is what is that all about? Yeah, so when I was 19 years old, um, I was a sophomore in college, and basically one day I woke up and I took what I now consider to be the worst shower of my life. Um, I was totally doubled over in pain. I quickly got very, very sick um, and really felt like it had come out of nowhere. And, you know, I ended up, you know, going to the emergency room and basically being told that given my age and, you know, the fact that I was like a young college girl that I probably either had, you know, some kind of um, urinary tract infection or some kind of sexual, like, infection or that I was pregnant. And I was like, well, you know, maybe it could be a UTI, but it can't be those other two things because I'm a virgin still. So, you know, there was like a lot of assumptions made right off the bat um, that really set the tone for what the next basically like, you know, few years of my life would be like in terms of trying to figure out um, why that kind of acute illness happened and why I never got better. And in retrospect, over the years, um, I started to put some pieces together in terms of like, from the time that I got my first period, my periods were always really, really, really heavy and painful. And I also had a lot of other symptoms, like especially GI symptoms, um, from the very first period I ever had. And I actually remember it very vividly because it was on Thanksgiving and I was so sick all day that I couldn't, like, you know, like participate in any of the food activities of that day because I was just completely sick. And it was always like that. Um, and I never really, I guess, you know, thought that it was abnormal because everybody always said, you know, your period hurts and, you know, you have all these other symptoms and that's just part of being a woman and you just have to get used to it. So for a long time, I just kind of felt that that was kind of a normal thing. And so it wasn't until I had something really acute happen um, that basically made me like have to go to the emergency room, not once, but several times. Um, And that I got so, so sick that I actually had to drop out of college because I was so sick, I couldn't like leave my bed. And I started, you know, 
like I lost a lot of weight and I started to get gray hair. Like I was so sick. And, you know, as I started to try to ask doctors to help me figure out why, they just kept being like, well, you're stressed out or you're a type A personality. And I even had one doctor say that, you know, because I'd had sort of a complex, um, you know, social history growing up that maybe I had been molested as a child. And so all the pain I was experiencing was just a result of that. And if there was nothing actually wrong with me in terms of like a physical ailment. Um, so finally I did end up having uh, the first of a couple of surgeries, which revealed that I had what they call an endometrioma on my left fallopian tube, the end of the tube. It had actually twisted the tube. So if you imagine what it looks like when you wring out a washcloth, it kind of looked like that um, in terms of how it had damaged the tube. Um, but endometriomas are basically cysts that are filled with blood and they are really typical when you have a condition called endometriosis. And endometriosis is when um, lesions that are very similar but not identical to the tissue that is lining the uterus that usually is shed when you have a period gets into other places in the body and, and implants and reacts to your hormonal cycle, meaning that it bleeds the way that your uterine tissue does, except that it's not in a place where it can get out of the body. So it can be um, in the space behind your uterus. It can be on your intestines. It can be uh, on nerves like sciatica, like sciatic nerves. Um, there have even been cases of it in people's lungs, on their diaphragm, and even in very rare cases in the brain. So it can pretty much go, you know, a lot of different places in the body. And the symptoms that you have are going to be kind of to do with more where it is, not necessarily how much of it you have. And the thing is, is that over time, as it continues to respond to the hormone cycles and bleeds, it causes inflammation. And the inflammation causes scarring. And all of these things cause pain. And because it can you know, pre present so differently for different people, um, it's, it's very, very difficult to get a diagnosis. I was very lucky because I got a diagnosis relatively quickly because I had a surgery for the cyst um, and torch fallopian tube, which was kind of an emergency situation because that can, you know, you can get um, like, you know, septic from that if, it, if it's untreated. But many, 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 the, the majority of, of, of women that I know who have endometriosis um, didn't find out for a decade, if not longer. Um, well, and so I want to I want to talk about that a little bit. You know, it, yeah. it's it's not uncommon for me to to hear stories like that. I mean, I I deal in my clinic with chronic Lyme, and it's very similar. And my story was mm -hmm. similar. You know, I started looking when I was twenty one for a problem, and I was told that I was anxious and I was young, mm -hmm. and and all my symptoms would go away. And when I hit thirty, I was told, "Well, you're thirty now." I said, "But it's the same thing I've had for for ten years, and it's actually gotten worse. It hasn't gotten away." gone away. So I'm just wondering what is going on that people who have actually serious conditions are told things like what you have gone through and what I've gone through and, and thousands and probably millions of others. Why are we sent away and dismissed the way we are? Well, one of the most disturbing things to me about having had this experience is that in, you know, in, in partially, well, really kind of wholly the reason I felt that I needed to write this book was because when I first started talking about this a couple of years ago, um, like really openly talking about what happened to me, um, 
I was astounded by how many women would write to me and still do. And even now that the book is out, how many messages I get, emails I get, where it's not even just that women are saying, yeah, this happened to me or a doctor, you know, also told me this. It's like they're having these same conversations verbatim. Like they are literally being told, this is because of anxiety, here's a benzodiazepine, or you're, you know, making this up for attention because you're unsatisfied with your life, or you're having pain with sex because you don't like sex. I mean, there's like, it, it amazes me that so many women in all different parts of the, not even just like where I am in the U.S. and, and within North America, but even people abroad who have, who have told me these stories of all different ages and socioeconomic backgrounds and races, they're all having the same experience with doctors. And I think that, you know, for one thing, it said to me, okay, well, this is certainly, as I suspected, not an experience that was unique to me. Because for me, when I first started, because I was so young, I really did feel like it was my fault. Like I had, I was doing something wrong. I wasn't explaining my pain well enough, or I was doing something that made doctors not trust me or think that I was like, you know, unstable in some way or whatever it was, like I took the blame for it. And once I started realizing that there's something more systemic at play here that is so much bigger than just one patient's interaction with the healthcare system, it really put it into a whole different perspective for me. So when I set out to write the book, the first question I asked, and I think part of this is because I'm a science writer and I, you know, I kind of want to know like how things evolve and where things originated from, was that I started to look back in history and I started to say, what is the sort of sociocultural historical precedent for the way that we treat women when they interact with the healthcare system, when they seek medical attention, you know, what kind of studies have been done or what are some of the things we know about how women have been treated throughout history for conditions like um, chronic pain. And one of the things that obviously came up very, very early on in that research was hysteria. So this whole idea that for actually a not insignificant part of our cultural history, you know, especially in medicine, there was really this this very, very, you know, um, effective, not effective in the sense that it, it necessarily worked, but in that it influenced very heavily the practice of medicine and, psycho, and, and, and psychology, um, is that there was this, a, a sort of school of thought that women, because they had uteruses, because they had ovaries, because they had hormonal cycles, were, for whatever reason, more prone to certain conditions that were ultimately manifestations of their sort of um, psychological struggles and their tendency to be overstimulated by their environment, or in some cases, understimulated, um, and that all of these things that they experienced physically, which were almost always somewhat pelvic in nature, it usually involved difficulties with sex, difficulties with their menstrual cycles, so they may have, you know, really, really heavy periods, or they might have had very, very, very painful periods, um, and this was all sort of inextricably linked even farther back in history to the idea of like, you know, the, in, back in antiquity when there was this sort of concept of the wandering uterus, which was that a woman's uterus, her womb, could travel places in the body and basically cause trouble. And so that, even though we know that that, you know, is not anatomically correct or possible, there has been so much of history that in terms of like how we teach medicine and what kinds of 
sort of overarching themes get passed down in medical education over the course of many, 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 many years that kind of harken back to some of these ideas um, that we have specifically about what the, what the having of a uterus or a hormone cycle means for a woman's ability to not just demonstrate a particular uh, condition or disease, but her own perception of it, in fact. So really, I think where the disconnect here is, is that it's not that we don't know that women do have a number of physical ailments that they can suffer from, just as anybody can. Um, you know, women absolutely get all kinds of cancers. They get all kinds of uh, chronic diseases that are the result of autoimmune uh, issues and infectious diseases and are just as susceptible as anybody else. But the problem seems to be is that at this higher level, that is way, way beyond the encounter between just one patient and one doctor, but somewhere much higher up in terms of like how medicine is structured in terms of teaching and our sort of like that bigger culture. The problem is that it's that we don't, not we, but like the, the greater we, the cultural we, is that we don't think that women actually understand their own bodies well enough to be able to communicate what the problem is. So when they say, I have pain, or I feel sick, or it's, it's, it's like this, or it's not going away, or it, you know, this doesn't make it any better, and no, yoga doesn't help, you know, whatever it is, then the response is to doubt them. And the response is, well, we need you to actually prove it, because it's not just enough for you to say so. And I found that very disturbing, because not only had I experienced it, not only had I heard so many other women say they experienced it, but I started to see what the sort of historical groundwork had been for that perspective. And then I started to ask, well, how are we ever going to change that? It, well, it, yeah, that, that's a good question. And, you know, it, it's it's funny in this day and age that it's still something that we're dealing with, you know, that we're, we're still up against um, somebody not believing us and, and taking us seriously when so much else has changed for us. Exactly. Yeah, I think about that a lot. And I also think a lot about, I mean, I'm, I'm almost 27. I'll be 27, um, actually, like, <laughs> in just a couple of weeks. Um, oh, happy birthday. So, <laughs> thank you. Um, you know, I always think about how when I was growing up, I, I was very fortunate that I had a lot of um, older women in my life who were very strong mentors to me. And, and I still am very fortunate to have those relationships in my life, both professionally and personally. And one of the things that these women have always said to me as I was growing up was that there were all of these things that they had to deal with that I wouldn't have to because I was growing up in a different world and it, women were treated differently. And I think in some ways that did ultimately prove to be true. There is a more of a sense of equality than there would have been, say, for people of my grandmother's generation. But in so many ways, um, things have not changed. And in fact, you know, the, I think in some of the ways in which it hasn't changed, particularly as it pertains to issues around women's health and, and reproductive health in, in, in particular, um, is, is very alarming. And, you know, I look even now, I think I'm, I'm actually entering into a point in my life where, you know, I'm starting to feel old enough to actually look at, at young people who are in like middle and high school and I'm aware of that generational difference enough to say, you know, I'm just far enough ahead that maybe I can affect some change that will benefit them. But 
so much of, of what I'm trying to do and, and have this conversation um, and to challenge these sort of bigger, like patriarchal structure uh, issues is something that I very much recognize I may not benefit from, um, largely because so much of what I had to go through over the last almost 10 years um, resulted in things in terms of health and in terms of like my quality of life and my finances and my ability to finish an education and um, have steady work and even just have, you know, the kinds of like meaningful relationships that make your life feel worth, you know, having. I mean, all of those things were so negatively influenced by not just the time I spent sick, but all of the years I spent trying to figure out why and trying to convince somebody to help um, that, you know, I'm, I am at a point now where I have to kind of accept that, you know, I, that I cannot ever get that back. You know, I'm never going to be the way I was before I got sick. Like I'm never going to get back to health. And I think that that's something that for a lot of women who have gone through this is very difficult to grapple with. And I think anybody with a chronic illness actually probably would empathize with that, even if they don't have endometriosis, even if they don't have something that explicitly affects their reproductive system in some way. I think anybody who has chronic pain or a long-standing chronic health issue that's progressive um, has to sort of confront that at some point. And I think it's particularly difficult to do when you're still very, very young, because then you sort of look ahead and you think, is it, geez, is it going to be like this for the next 20 or 30 years? And, you know, if so, then what can I do, you know, to sort of try to make that better, not just in terms of my day-to-day life, but actually look at what some of the issues are that have influenced it um, well, at that we're gonna, sort of broader cultural level. I'm going to, I'm just going to cut you off. We're going to talk about this more uh, when we get back. Um, we're talking today with Abby Norman, and we're discussing her book, Ask Me About My Uterus. And we'll be back shortly. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. The largest syndicated alternative health talk program has come to the Voice America Network. The Dr. Bob Martin Show is the program that will answer your health questions and help you to heal your own body of many different ailments. Each week, you'll hear the answers that Dr. Bob gives to his callers that help them to be their own doctor most of the time. We'll also discuss developments on the health care front and what you need to do to keep your body in top form. The Dr. Bob Martin Show airs Wednesday mornings at 9 a.m. Eastern, 6 a.m. Pacific on Voice America Health & Wellness. The Voice America Live Events Channel is here now to showcase your corporate, individual, or organization's live event. Visit voiceamerica.com forward slash live events to see all of our past live events and find out more. Whether it's a multi-day conference, special speaker, or single-day event, we've got everything to make your event a success. We can do a few hours or a few days. For more information about taking your event to the next level, call Jeff Spinard at 480-294-294. 6417 or email info at voiceamerica.com. 
Again, that's Jeff Spinard at 480-294-6417. Or send us an email to info at voiceamerica.com. Voice America is where you are and where you want to be. Join us around the globe as we broadcast live from some of the most interesting events available. Don't forget to view all our live events, including on-demand access to past events that you may have missed by visiting voiceamerica.com forward slash live events. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. are listening to Falling Through the Cracks with your host, Dr. Rebecca Risk. To reach the program today, please call in to 1-866-472-5792. Again, that's 1-866-472-5792. You may also send an email directly to Dr. Risk. The email address is anantacalgary at gmail.com. Now, back to Falling Through the Cracks. Feel alive and thrive. Welcome back. Today we're talking with Abby Norman and we're discussing her book, Ask Me About My Uterus. So Abby, you know, before the break, you you made a comment that that made me think a little bit that you had to convince someone to take your pain seriously. So what does that mean? Like, why didn't anybody take it seriously in the first place? And what 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 did you have to go through to make that happen? Well, I think one of the things that I learned very quickly um, when this started is that in general, pain is one of the things that I think the medical profession dislikes the most because it's so subjective. It's very, very difficult to actually have have a productive conversation about pain because things like the pain scale, um, which I talk about at length in the book, are designed for a very specific purpose, but they often get used like in an emergency room setting in a way that, for me anyway, kind of inspired some self-doubt. So I remember the first time I was in the emergency room, I'd actually been sick for about a week. I was still um, in college at that time, and I had resisted going uh, at all. I had, I, you know, I actually put it off for quite a while, and I was so exhausted from being in pain that I was a little bit more subdued than I think that the emergency room doctors and nurses maybe were expecting. Because, you know, when you go to the doctor, they ask you, like, what, what your pain is on a scale of 1 to 10. And I remember I said something like a 6, but then I thought, well, maybe I think it's a 6, but what do they think a 6 should be? Or what does a 6 mean to them that then they're coming back and kind of, like, saying, okay, well, you're saying that, but that probably isn't what it actually is. And... Then I was thinking about how, you know, like I remembered when I was a little girl, like my best friend had um, a really serious injury to her hands, like her hands got severely burned. And I remember being really stressed out about it because I knew she was in pain, but I also knew that I couldn't understand exactly how she felt because I wasn't in her body. And it was very, very hard for me to sort of conceptualize what somebody else's pain was like physically. I think it's much easier for us to have conversations about empathy where we're talking about someone's emotional pain, but physical pain is very, very, very different for all of us. And part of that has to do with just the spectrum of pain that we might experience in our lifetime. So at that point, when I was 19, I'd only experienced so many different types of pain, right? You know, and now it's been almost 10 years since then, and I've experienced a lot more types of pain. So my ability to communicate pain to a medical professional or a friend or anybody else um, 
is certainly more, I think there's a richer vocabulary. But the problem is, is that it's still something that is very subjective. And that's really difficult for the medical profession to deal with. They like things that can be tested for very straightforwardly. So, you know, they do a blood test or, or a urine sample, and there's something that they can actually get that, that's very specifically diagnostic and not vague. And pain, in terms of talking about it as, you know, sort of qualifying what kind of pain it can be, like, is it a dull pain? Is it a sharp pain? Does it come and go? Does it get worse when you breathe? Does it get worse when you walk? I mean, things like that help. Um, but it can be still very difficult to, I find, have those conversations in a way that is, you know, ultimately productive. Because one thing that happened to me over the course of the next few years, um, as I had compounding issues on top of, like, what had started that very first time was that I would have conversations with doctors where, you know, I would, I would actually try to very specifically describe my pain. Um, and for a while, and I talk about this in the book, but for a while during these, during these periods of time, I was actually working in a hospital because I was in the emergency room so much that I saw a job posting and I needed a job, um, preferably a job where I could sit down and preferably a job where I had health insurance. And it just helped that it was, you know, somewhere that I happened to be going quite a bit. Um, and so I picked up on the medical terminology while I was there. And actually that completely backfired for me in terms of talking to doctors because the more I tried to use language that I thought would be helpful to them, like the more specifically I wanted to talk about my pain and the more helpful I was trying to be, the more they accused me of like, you know, doing like Dr. Google, you know what I mean? The more they accused me of like reading too much or being a hypochondriac. And, you know, there was, it seemed like really a very, what you would say, a damned if you do, damned if you don't kind of situation. Because if I wasn't talking about it enough, like if I wasn't giving them enough information, they were like, well, you know, this pain is too vague or this set of symptoms is too vague. It could be anything. There's nothing to test for. You know, it's just, you must just be anxious or stressed out and you're probably just making yourself anxious because you're thinking about it too much. But then if I would try to actually break it down and and piece pieces together and, and try to help, then all of a sudden I was like trying to be a doctor or I was a hypochondriac or I was too obsessed with my, my body or, or my health. And so I really got to a point where I felt like no matter what I did, it was the wrong thing. And that was a really helpless place to be in. One thing I found interesting in your book is that, you know, you were having pain with intercourse because of the the endometriosis. And um, you mentioned that you weren't taken seriously until your partner came with you. And then, and then because it was bothering him, they were, they were listening to it more. Yes, this was, this was a big turning point for me. And, and, and I'm sad to tell you that that part of the part of that particular anecdote in the book has resonated with so many women. I have had so many women message me like on Twitter this week and been like, that is literally the same thing that happened to me. Like it wasn't until the husband went to the appointment or the boyfriend at the time went to the appointment. And for me, I had been going to different doctors, you know, like my regular doctor or a surgeon or even my annual gynecological visit. And I would say things like, you know, I, I have excruciatingly bad periods. I always have, but now I'm, have you know I've been in the sexual relationship with with this partner who who I care about very very much and I love and I'm you know and I and I'm very attracted to and I want to be able to have sex with and I just 
can't because it's so excruciatingly painful and you know we just can't seem to figure out how to how to fix it and you know they were like well you know whatever it was that I was saying to that effect didn't seem to didn't seem to like have any weight because it was just something like again it was kind of like being told my whole life that that painful periods were normal. Well, I'd also been told since like my first sex ed class that it was going to hurt when I lost my virginity and that it probably would actually hurt for a while while I was like getting used to sex and that I just had to put up with it. And I remember thinking probably the first six months after I lost my virginity, like how long is it supposed to hurt before it gets better? No one ever said that, you know, like people said, oh yeah, like sex is probably going to hurt for a while, but no one ever said like when it was going to stop. So I went a very long time before I even started saying to a doctor, you know, sex is painful for me just because that had been normalized. But by the time I started talking about it, I was kind of dismissed in the sense that even then there was this attitude of like, well, you know, certain, and this is true, but like, sir, you know, maybe it's this particular position isn't good for you. And so you should just do it differently. And I'm like, look, you know, this boyfriend and I are 22 years old. Like we've, we've tried everything, <laughs> like, you know, we're, but it's really not like, it's not that, I mean, it's literally like just everything hurts and I can't even wear tampons because everything hurts. And it wasn't until finally this, this boyfriend that I had went with me and then when I started to be like, you know, I was talking about it and he, and he started to say, yeah, I'm like really unsatisfied here because we haven't been able to have sex like in months. Then all of a sudden it was like a crisis. And I was like, hey, wait a second. I've been saying this for how long? And also I've been super unsatisfied too. Like it's not like he was the only one who was not having sex but wanted to be. Like I also really wanted to and couldn't and nobody seemed to be unnerved by the fact that I was like very frustrated by that and that I was in pain I think that that is a good point I mean especially um this isn't in your book but when the the Viagra for women whatever that was 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 coming out there was actually a lot of controversy and I I think people forget that women have hormones that sometimes decline and they still have that desire to be intimate, but then they don't have the hormones that facilitate that desire or whatever is going on is is that we want that too. And I think that gets forget and I think that is a huge women's right issue as as we're talking about, that that it just you know, because we can show up and, and what everything still works that that it shouldn't be a problem. Uh, you know what I mean? I, I it it just seems like there's something right in, in that that train of thought there. Yeah, it made me very sad, actually. I mean, at first, it made me very angry. <laughs> like, I was, even that day, I was very, very, very angry. But over time, it just made me sad, because one of the things I realized was that not only was my sexual pleasure as a woman no one else's priority, but it hadn't even been my priority, because really, what I was, at that time in my life, at you know, 21, 22 years old with this, my first very serious boyfriend, I was very, very afraid that he would break up with me. And I mean, we all, we ultimately did break up, but I mean, at that point I was really afraid of, of the, and, and disappointed in myself and guilt ridden because I wasn't being a sexual partner. It wasn't even, at that point I was even like, I knew that I was frustrated and I knew that it meant something to me and that I wanted it to be fixed and I didn't want to be in pain, but I also was really, really racked by guilt of not being what 
I thought he he wanted or needed or expected me to be. And one of the things that as I as I started to tell the story and since the book has come out that has really gutted me is that, you know, I mean, I'm I'm in my, you know, getting into my late 20s now. So arguably, I mean, you know, I have <laughs> I have not lived all that long and I have not had like, you know, decades and decades and decades of of experiences, you know, with partners, but I've had I've just heard so many women who have 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 read the book or they've read something I've read on you know online or they've heard me do an interview and they've just said, you know, I've been living like this for 30 years and trying to raise kids and trying to you know living in constant fear that my husband's going to leave me. And I think like how does I mean how can you I mean I think it's bad enough that I went through this for, you know, however long I've gone through it just in my you know, sort of relatively short lifetime. But then I start thinking about what would it feel like to have been going through this for 30 years or even longer. I'm sure that if we look at the women in our grandmother's generation, I mean, this is like diseases like endometriosis or ovarian cysts or anything like that's associated with those conditions. It's not like they're new. They've been around since antiquity. And so there have always been women with these diseases. They've always been suffering, but mostly they've been suffering in silence. And I just, I feel like there must be so many women who, who recognize themselves in these, in these stories and in these sort of um, experiences who may have never even gotten as far as going to a doctor. I mean, they probably have had this experience of being dismissed, but maybe they didn't even get that far because they've, we've normalized female pain for one thing on many, many levels, but that they also just feel like they just have to put up with it, that it's their, that it's their duty or that there's, that the, everybody else's happiness and well-being is more important than theirs. I mean, I feel like there's just so many complex parts to this that we have to look at. You know, it's not just a healthcare issue. It's not just a patriarchy issue. It's not just um, even like a medical thing or, or an issue in terms of like a lack of research. There's so many pieces of it. And in some ways that makes it, I think, really overwhelming. But it also means that there are many, many opportunities for us to kind of collectively start working on it, all from our different vantage points. And so well, I, I do take some, you know, hope in, in that. Um, one of the questions on my very long intake form is I do ask people if they're satisfied with their sex life. And um, I have found over the years that people don't get asked that question. And it's it's embarrassing if it's a verbal, verbally asked them as well. Some people st- still won't answer it, but if they can write it down, they will. Um, but I, I find also that, I mean, it doesn't get asked enough, and especially with women, I mean, it's considered normal that you're not interested, and so, you know, you should just kind of deal with that. And um, we're, we're not talking about all the reasons why that can happen and what that means for, for us as well. And actually, that kind of actually makes me want to ask you a question, because (laughs) I was just hearing that and thinking about how people might answer it. And I'm wondering, like, what do you find, like, how how do women interpret that question? Because I think you could, I think there's, there's many ways I imagine just from the conversations that I've had with women over the years that that, that you might take that question. So what does it mean to be satisfied with your sex life? Because for me, throughout this process, it would be a question of like, well, am I, are my particular sexual needs being met for me or, or do I feel like I'm being 
an active and satisfactory sexual partner or is it both? Because I'm just wondering like how many women <laughs> would actually interpret that question as being like, am I a functioning like partner they, to somebody? Yeah, they, they do see it that way and, and they will say no and they'll say, or yes, or whatever's happening, but they, they'll say, you know, I'm not interested, I'm tired, I'm in pain or that their partner is has whatever their issues are. Um, but people are very honest. It, it, it Not so much when I used to ask it verbally, <laughs> especially with That's the men. That, that, yeah, but if they can write it down, they're they're honest about it and they tell me why, because I ask why, um, why you know, if, if they're not satisfied. And I do get those answers. And that comes to their overall health as well. I mean, if they're sick, whether, um, you know, endometriosis or just a general unwellness, I mean, I treat very complicated chronic uh, problems. Of course, usually they're not satisfied because they're in pain and they're too tired and they can't show up in their relationship the way they want to. So it's actually usually something that comes near the end of their health journey but um, that's because it takes a long time to get through those layers of pain and fatigue before they're well enough to to show up in their relationship but it does start to to change and happen yeah yeah and I think that one of the things too that is so particular to or at least that I found in terms of talking primarily about um, issues that have to do with uh, largely have to do with like the female reproductive system is that these are all things that women are really conditioned not to have conversations about, sometimes not even with each other. I mean, I was thinking about how when I was a teenager, and this was not that long ago, I mean, I was a teenager like in the early 2000s, so it's not like I'm talking about like 30 years ago, you know, even talking about your period. Like, I remember being in high school and, you know, the the worst thing that could happen would be that like a tampon would fall out of your backpack in the hallway and everybody would know that you were either on your period or that you did have one. I mean, it was just this, this idea that you had to keep it very, very um, hidden. Not so much that it was going to be like a thing that, that it didn't necessarily say something about you, but it made other people uncomfortable. And I think a lot of these things that we don't talk about, um, particularly that it has to do with sex or even GI issues, which are a very big component of endometriosis for many, many, many people. And also a number of chronic illnesses impact that body system in a way that is often very debilitating. Um, and so I think that just that, that idea that like these are things that we don't talk about or that people have been so conditioned not to talk about them that they don't even know how to have that conversation. And, and I don't even just mean with a doctor. I'm just thinking about all of these women who you might have asked that question to who can maybe explain it to you in writing, but like how, you know, like had they ever, would they ever feel like they could have that conversation with their partner? Like how would they, would they be like so just maybe even intimidated is the word about trying to have that conversation and how like, and I, and I'm just thinking how stressful those things were for me at, you know, at, at this point in my life when I was trying to go through all of this and it was all very much happening. But I mean, I think, you know, as time goes on and you know somebody even for a really long time, it just seems incredibly frustrating. And like, I'm frustrated and disappointed and, and, you know, wanting to solve these issues at a broader level because I'm thinking about how, how much of your life can be spent suffering and trying to keep other people from knowing that you are. And I think that's, I, that's very difficult to, to, to take. 
I, I agree. Um, we are going to take a, a break. We're talking today with Abby Norman, and we're discussing her book, Ask Me About My Uterus. We'll be back shortly. Opinions, options, answers. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. Take us on the go. It's even easier now. The Voice America Talk Radio Network has launched our mobile app for iPhone, Android, or BlackBerry. Visit the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market to download the app powered by Aircast. It's free and no registration is necessary. In minutes, you could be enjoying your favorite Voice America Talk Radio host, no matter where you are, in the car, out and about, while traveling, or anytime you can't be close to your computer. Catch up on the archives you've missed or discover new shows on the spot. Search Voice America at your favorite app store. What causes us to be sick? We're not talking about the actual illness or the scientific cause of illnesses. We're talking about your body and health. Listen for the healing whisper of return to peace. Each week, host Dr. Marianne Chase shows you how to listen to your heart to identify poor health, stress, and disease. You'll learn how to heal energetically and spiritually as well as physically. It's time to depend less on the drugs and more on the heart. The Healing Whisper airs live every Friday at 11 a.m. Eastern Time, 8 a.m. Pacific on Voice America Health & Wellness. Follow the Voice America Talk Radio Network on Twitter. We're at Voice America TRN. You'll get the latest fix on what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and general happenings that you should know about at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. Now you don't have to miss anything when you're away from your home or office. Just go to twitter.com forward slash Voice America TRN or follow along with us at Voice America TRN. The Voice America Talk Radio Network. We're on the cutting edge of social media. Can you keep up? Opinions, options, answers. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. are listening to Falling Through the Cracks with your host, Dr. Rebecca Risk. To reach the program today, please call in to 1-866-472-5792. Again, that's 1-866-472-5792. You may also send an email directly to Dr. Risk. The email address is anantacalgary at gmail.com. Now, back to Falling Through the Cracks. Feel alive and thrive. Hi, everybody. Welcome back. Today, we're talking with Abby Norman, and we're discussing her book, Ask Me About My Uterus. So, Abby, I mean, we've we've discussed um, all these issues with um, women's health and basically how we're, we're not necessarily taken seriously. But what do you think we need to do to change society's perception of all of this? How can we make this better for, you know, as you said, the, the next generation coming up so that they don't um, have to deal with what you did? That is the big question. And this is the question that, you know, I think for me, writing the book and being really open and transparent about my experience is just the first step of, and I'm actually kind of hoping, you know, now that the book is out and I've, I've been able to kind of start having these conversations more broadly, that some of these answers will come kind of from within. And I think that the first step really is very much that we all um, are able to find the space or that the space has somehow been made in its own little way um, for these stories to start 
coming up. Because the thing is, is that from the beginning, I always said, you know, I, this isn't just about what happened to me. I mean, I don't want to be like the poster girl for anything. But if telling my story opened up a space for other people to come in and say, yes, this also happened to me. And I want to tell my story. And I want to say what happened when I went through this. I mean, I think that's kind of how it's going to start. Because then all of a sudden, it's going to be really obvious just how big of it and broad of an issue it is and how far reaching it is and how far back it goes. And I think that's the first step. Um, it, just having that awareness. I also think that, uh, you know, and I know I mentioned this before, but just the appreciation of the fact that it is a very complex issue and that it's not just about like, you know, bad doctors or doctors not listening to people or medical education, not, you know, being, um, sensitive to these biases that are very, very antiquated or, you know, anything like that. I mean, it's, it is all of these things, but it is also way, way more than just that. I mean, we have so many structures um, socially that are patriarchal that we have been systematically trying to dismantle for like hundreds of years. That's not new. But I think that this, this turning that lens and that focus toward where it has impacted women in terms of medicine and health and healthcare and those structures, I think that's going to be really important. Somebody the other day called it the medical Me Too movement. And I was like, oh, you know, that is kind of what's going on here. At least that's what it feels like for me when I go, you know, when I have been going on my social media this week and just all of these women are coming over, like coming into my, my Twitter mentions and telling me their stories and saying, yes, this happened to me. Yes, I have felt this. Um, and I think that, you know, speaks volumes because not only does that make, you know, all of us who have gone through it feel that it wasn't just us, you know, we're not alone in it, but I think it's going to show to, you know, some of these larger cultural structures and social and, and to some extent political structures that it isn't just one type of patient or it isn't just patients in one place, or really that it isn't even, you know, something that's unique to one illness or one condition. So, you know, obviously I've had a lot of response from um, young women and, and, and not and actually just women in general, anybody with a uterus really, uh, or who at one time had a uterus, <laughs> many of them do not now, um, who have spoken specifically about reproductive health issues like endometriosis. But I've also had so, so many people call in and say, this is exactly why it took me 10 years to get a Lyme diagnosis or why mm -hmm. I didn't know that I had rheumatoid arthritis or lupus or, you know, any number of, of chronic conditions um, that women suffered with for years and years and years, often to the permanent detriment of their health because they went so long without treatment and so long without a diagnosis um, that, you know, it really had a longstanding detrimental impact on their lives. And really, in that sense, what needs to be addressed is something even beyond whatever the actual disease is itself. It's the disease that exists within the social structure, which is doubt. And it's not just that these structures and institutions are doubting women, it's that women have been so conditioned to doubt themselves. So you have to really address the fact, I think, from within, and maybe that comes from you know, making this community exist to some extent and creating a space to have these conversations amongst ourselves. But, you know, for me, there was also this very, you know, sort of, ex sort of like really in your face feeling of, I think about how much time went by before I even was doubted by a doctor because it just took me that much longer to actually 
believe myself that my pain was real. And I hear this from women all the time. I mean, I, I think of how many stories I have heard from even friends, even people I know in real life that I've known over the years who had a mother or an aunt or a sister who fell ill for months, maybe even a year, and just kept writing it off. Like, oh, I've just got indigestion. Oh, I've just got back pain. Or, oh, I'm just having weird, you know, hormonal things because I'm getting close to menopause. And then it turns out they've got ovarian cancer. But by the time they went to a doctor or by the time it got bad enough that they actually could get serious medical care where somebody paid attention, the disease was so advanced that they couldn't do anything about it. And that it haunts me. And I, you know, people always say that things like ovarian cancer are silent killers. And I'm like, no, 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 I don't believe that. It's the women who are silent. It's the patients who are silent. And the reasons that they are, are not because they're not experiencing symptoms. It's not because the disease isn't making them feel sick. It's that they don't think they're sick enough to go to a doctor and, and have anybody take them seriously or that the, that they're not sick enough to like not function in their lives in a way that makes them feel justified in putting their own health first. And I think that is really one of the biggest things that we have to address. And I'm not saying that this is something that's going to be easy to do. I don't think it's going to happen overnight, but I think that if there's an awareness of it um, and that we can all kind of, for one, we can hold each other accountable, then we can start to make those changes higher up. But even then, you know, there has to also be an awareness from within those structures. So the healthcare systems, the medical schools, certainly individual doctors, but, you know, there has to be sort of a, a, a sense of accountability all around. It isn't going to come, the change isn't going to come from just one place. There has to be sort of change that comes from all of, all of the different pieces. Well, I definitely agree with you. I mean, that's something that, um, you know, I our story, although I don't have endometriosis, our stories are similar because I spent my 20s in pain and in bed and, and looking for a diagnosis and um, trying to get someone to take me seriously, which didn't happen. Um, you know, I, I had to go outside of the system to get help and, um, you know, which most people with Lyme disease do. And, mm-hmm. you know, it, there's a failure there that we're we get as sick as we do no matter what's going on and that the system is failing us it's not looking at us in the way that it should I mean if you're not functioning as a person and and you're doing your your meetings in the afternoon from a bathtub which you talk about in your book then Mm -hmm. you know there's something wrong that you have to function in that way, yet you're not getting taken seriously for the pain that you're in, which means that you can't function in a normal relationship, in a normal job, doing the things that you want to do. Your quality of life is very poor, and the doctors are saying, oh, well, that's the way it is. Yeah, yeah, and there's something about that that even today, and I think the thing that, one thing that people have expressed to me about this book is that, I mean, like, spoiler alert, you know, it's not like I, it's not like I magically get better at the end. It's not like I magically get the answers, because that's not how life works. It's not how life with chronic illness works, certainly. And actually, the irony is, is that I'm sicker now than I was when the book started, or even at, like, the most, like, climactic point in the book. Um, and, and even, as I, as, as you know, because we spoke about this before I, before I came on the show, but I, even over the last couple of weeks since the book came out and I was on the book tour, I got a very serious infection um, and actually had to cut that short and have since come back 
to, to where I live in Maine um, on, on the coast. So I've come back home to try to recuperate from that. And actually today, to be perfectly honest with you, <laughs> today is probably the first day since I started this, you know, and I'm sure somebody with, with Lyme, you, you are very familiar with doxycycline, but you know, this, I've been on that for several days now. And this is really the first day that I've been able to kind of get up and move around my own apartment without, with any kind of like, you know, certainty on my feet. Um, and I sometimes am very resentful of the fact that I have, that I ever got so sick at all. You know, I, I don't, I'm not saying that there would have necessarily been better answers for me because to be honest, endometriosis has so few treatments and even fewer that work for any extended period of time for any patient, but certainly do not work for all patients that I know it would have been very difficult for me. But over the last couple of years, particularly, my constant shifting basis in terms of quality of life has been very, very difficult to grapple with because it's been a loss in terms of, you know, certainly socially, in terms of relationships, in terms of my career goals and my educational goals, but also just the ways that my body has changed. So, I mean, you know, even in the last so I'm six gonna, months... I'm gonna- I'm sorry, I do have to cut you off because we have to end the oh. show. A little foreboding place to end it, but I know if anybody wants to know more, they they can get your book. Um, can you just tell us um, how also like what your website is so people can yeah, get in touch with absolutely. you? So the book is out, um, and it is pretty much in more places than I ever could have imagined. Um, everywhere you know you can get books. It's also uh, a Kindle version, like an ebook version, and an audiobook version. Um, and my website is abbynormanwriter.com, and I'm on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at, at Abby M. Norman. Perfect. Well, Abby, thank you so much for sharing your story and joining us today. And thank you so much for having me, Rebecca. It was really great to talk to you. Today we were talking with Abby Norman. We were discussing her book, Ask Me About My Uterus, A Quest to Make Doctors Believe in Women's Pain. Thank you so much for listening and be sure to make today a great day. Thank you for tuning in to this week's edition of Falling Through the Cracks. Feel alive and thrive. Please join Dr. Rebecca Risk again next Monday at noon Eastern Time and 9 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. We'll talk more next week.